Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's Infection Control Matters. And uh, I'm joined by Brett Mitchell from Australia. Morning, Brett. Uh, good morning, Martin. Well, good evening for you, I think. Oh, good evening. Uh, and our special guest, yeah, our special guest today is Professor Hilary Humphreys from the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland. And uh, Brett picked up on a paper extremely quickly, actually, that appeared in press in the <laughs> Journal of Healthcare Infection, or Journal of Hospital Infection, should I say. Uh, and um, Hilary thought he actually possibly had too much time on his hands by picking it up on it quite quickly. But anyway, <laughs> what's the paper, Brett, that we're going to have a chat about? And uh, Yes, look, I, I got an alert from uh, email alert and it popped up and I thought, this is something different. Let's uh, see if we can have a chat with Hillary about it. So the paper is called Workload for Infection Prevention and Control Teams in Preventing Nosocomial Tuberculosis. It's um, currently a pre-proof with the Journal of Hospital Infection, so it's accepted and been peer-reviewed. So um, Hillary, thanks so much for joining us uh, to chat about this paper. You're very welcome, and uh, I have to say I didn't I didn't think it would hit the, the headlines so quickly. So I'm very flattered and and, and uh, very impressed. You're so much on top of the literature. <laughs> Look, we we do like things that just spark a bit of interest, and you know that's obviously our interest from time to time. But you know, there's there's things out there. There's so much that's written, and it's often the same sorts of things. And I just thought this is a bit different because you know there's been a lot of discussion in recent times about workloads in healthcare. Full you know, generally, and then you know, in the in the infection control space, it's been a couple of different couple of difficult years. But prior to to COVID, you know, even before that, we weren't really great at articulating and describing what we did and some of the important considerations about workload. Um, so that's, I guess, where I uh, where I thought this paper might might be a bit of interest to share with uh, with listeners. So, Ellie, just want to take us back a step and talk to us about where this the setting for this particular paper and then um yeah perhaps a little bit of background to to why you did it sure um so first of all i'd, I'd like to acknowledge the team and particularly cueva murphy who's the first author who did a lot of the work as well as infection prevention control nurses vanula duffy and fiona mccormick as well as microbiologist Sinead o'donnell and fidelma fitzpatrick and it really was something we were thinking about for a couple of years as to how much time we spend at this. And an opportunity arose because Cueva, who's a medical student, had an opportunity over the summer to do a, a summer student project. And um, or it actually, it was a, it may have been a special study module. But in any event, um, you know, it was an opportunity to analyze the data we had as well as do a little bit of prospective work. And it really arose because we had started to do this a number of years back because we were concerned we might miss cases that might go on to be nosocomial tuberculosis. So it was really a kind of a patient safety mm. issue. And it was particularly important in our hospital where we don't have enough single rooms. We only have about 16% single rooms and we only have 12 air controlled ventilation rooms. So our facilities for managing, you know, patients with infectious tuberculosis are limited. So that's kind of where mm. it came. And it really was looking, as you say, in the context of pre-COVID of, you know, MRSA, um, CPE, C. diff, norovirus, etc. So that's kind of the background to it. I could tell you a bit more about the mm. hospital if you want, but that may be sufficient. Yeah, I, th I think um, so. Just for our, for our readers, that might listeners that might be useful. But but um, the man's having a giggle. Yes, I got the I got the stumbles between wrist, wrist, listeners and yep, readers. Yep. Um, but uh, Hillary, just on the twelve um, rooms that you mentioned that might be suitable from a ventilation point of view, mm. are you talking negative pressure rooms with a with an anti room? 
they're basically these kind of neutral pressure rooms which facilitate either source or um, protective isolation, but they're also scattered around the hospital. So there's two in the critical care area and they're, they're all, you know, they're used for patients with, you know, that are immunosuppressed. So we're really under pressure as to how we allocate those patients and, and where they are. So, yeah, and that'd be a trick too with staff, wouldn't it? Because, you know, staff getting used to... Um, the, the procedures are going to, I know that's changed a lot in the last mm. couple of years, but, mm. but prior to that, when they're scattered throughout the hospital um, and trying to presumably match up those TB as a priority against all the other priorities for single rooms mm. and then the expertise that might be in those wards, because would you have TB patients in all kinds of wards? Or We might, and we might also have, you know, immunosuppressed patients in those areas as well mm. so you're kind of it's really and it's really difficult you know for nursing and other staff and indeed even even though they're in you know contained rooms and they're protected within the rooms the the the, the idea that you've got you know, very vulnerable patients in this in the same geographical area but you also have patients who are high risk to those patients even if it's an air-controlled room it's kind mm. of difficult for sometimes for people to grasp and, and understandably so, um, and, and ideally you'd have you'd have the, the rooms in a, either in a designated area or you'd have sufficient of them separate away from, say, you know, patients with hemato-oncology, you know. Mm. I mean, how, how does it work then? Presumably the room is switchable then from one you know, positive to negative. And... Well, it's the neutral pressure. Oh, okay. It's the okay. neutral pressure system. So basically that means you're basically protecting the patient from what's outside, but you're also protecting the outside from what's in the patient because you've got okay. the positive pressure lobby and you've also got the extract yeah. um, in usually in the in the ensuite. Yeah. So okay, it's the kind of... Um, if, if you can switch it, that is yeah, a recipe for correct, disaster there. Correct. So. And, and we've okay. actually looked, one of my... Um, colleagues um uh tony we looked at some parameters on these rooms as to whether they're they do what they say they do and and they do it but again it's it's like every technology it has to be used correctly and of course you know monitored and appropriately um maintained okay so now tell us about this study then we got the background nicely so it, it consisted of you know a retrospective four years and a prospective two years to look at um you know basically how much time at our weekly infection prevention control meetings uh, we spend on this and um so we meet every week for approximately an hour and there might be i think roughly about 10 people there and um that what we found was that the most Difficult patients were actually the ones that were suspected of tuberculosis, the ones that were kind of, you know, fairly obvious and diagnosed. They, they went into a single room, into an air-controlled isolation pretty quickly, and the discussion was over fairly quickly within a couple of weeks, you know, maybe two weeks, whereas, you know, those patients we weren't sure about. Uh, the discussion might go on for a lot longer. We were waiting for test results. We were liaising with the clinicians, you know, was it tuberculosis or maybe was it some other condition like sarcoid or something like that? And, um, you know, this, and it, I think, took up something like about um, um, just uh, 19% or about 20% of the total duration of the infection prevention control meeting. So a significant amount of time, mm. bearing well, in mind those meetings are also discussing outbreaks and routine issues like CPE surveillance, et cetera, you know? Yeah. yeah, that certainly adds up, doesn't it? You know, you mm. think with that many bodies each week talking about that uh, number of, 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 of cases in that amount of time. Yeah, because I've never really f factored that in. It's just something you do. Um, but actually, to, to say over a period of time, it is taking up this amount of time, you almost mm. 
saying, well, actually, we've got to build that into the program and actually allow for that because while we're doing 20% of our time in that in that meeting, we're not talking about surveillance or, or other aspects mm. as well. And, and then just one other fact, mm. if you're interested, is that, uh, you know, for about 17% of the cases, there were some infection prevention control issues. Those might, might be minor, but it might also include delayed recognition that the patient might have tuberculosis and therefore there's a potential risk to other patients and staff with, you know, mm. potential contact tracing or at least uh, checking uh, patient susceptibility or patient vulnerability um yeah, and we also look we we also looked at sorry sorry Brett for cutting we also looked at you know number of specimens and you know there were issues about turnaround times we needed quicker times more for culture so we had microscopy and pcr which sh- you know should give you same day results but sometimes we were waiting for the culture results um and you know that meant we had to keep patients in in those rooms until we had excluded tuberculosis yeah, I think I saw, yeah, I, think I... Um, might have that figure wrong off the top of my head, but um, the the sort of in-house testing for TB took about 23 mm. days on average. Correct, um, yeah. 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 And, and and so... Well, it took, took up up to 23 days. So obviously sometimes okay. it... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, and, and so you made, you made a good point there. I mean, you, you sort of prospectively thought of collected that time element of each week, but there's the contacting tracing uh, element for those cases that slipped through the net initially and then the just general chasing up of results plus all presumably education and uh, additional support that goes in for anyone who might be in isolation so did you capture that prospectively or just just sort of you know just as part of the norm no we weren't able to do the contact tracing we just didn't have sort of the details on it and obviously there would be as you said, it'd be also a lot of informal education and so on. I mean, I think two things sort of came out of it. Number one is the the, the requirement for ongoing education. You know, obviously respiratory wards will, will be aware of possible tuberculosis, but, you know, a patient could come in to a surgical ward, maybe with a cough, and nobody kind of thinks that it could be tuberculosis. And then you might have that patient mm. on an open ward for two or three days. And um, so I think that's a, that's a, that's an issue. And then I think you know, particularly in emergency department, where again with overcrowded emergency departments, it can be challenging. And then, as you said, the 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 laboratory testing, you know, which I think we we kind of probably need to, to fine tune. And and I think the other thing, you know, looking at it is, you know, maybe more streamlined system for collecting the data to reduce the time and maybe to have the data analyzable as well. So, you know, that was part of what this exercise was about. It, was, it started out as an audit to see well. What are we doing? How does it work out? How much time do we spend? Can we cut down the amount of time we spend? And I'd be very interested. I don't know whether it might or might not provoke others to describe their experiences, but you know, there's probably others with similar or maybe better experiences who actually do this much better. You know? Yeah, and presumably during the period of this, this has included COVID. Maybe you haven't had quite as many cases coming in, or is, is actually that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2020, I think um, the numbers were significantly down. Um, you know, for example, patients admitted with uh, confirmed TB or suspected or confirmed TB were 31 in 2020, whereas it, it was 61 in 2018. So the numbers came down, definitely, yeah. And um, also the numbers, the number of mean isolation rooms, the number, the, the mean isolation time, in other words, the mean time in the isolation room obviously didn't change. Yeah. Yeah. Now, nothing to do with your paper, mm. but speculation on... Um why those numbers of TB patients decreased just because of some of the public health measures that were put in place perhaps? Or do you think there was just a lack of utilisation because of other increased demands? Or masking, masking yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, possibly yeah. that, or maybe, you know, who knows, we 
there mm. may have been cases make, missed in the community or in the emergency department because mm. patients didn't come in or people's mm. people's minds were on other things you know yeah. um I, you know could i tell there's mm. lots of reasons you know yeah a lot of the competing mm. priorities because those numbers seem yeah. quite stable for a few years yeah, so something yeah. obviously changed it's uh, yeah, 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 affected yeah. that. So yeah. um so I think you know you make the point well in the paper about early identification and patients potentially if they're being susceptible to be identified earlier would save a bit of time. Mm. And and you touched on the sort of testing uh, testing components. What about single room provision? Um you know I think it was about what 16% of, of your hospital had single rooms and you know uh, so a small number of those being these sorts of rooms that you can use for uh, pulmonary tuberculosis. Um, you know, are there any plans in your hospital or, or uh, thoughts that this needs to be increased? Well, there, there have been plans for, you know, a suite of isolation rooms, but like a lot of these things, these, these things seem to take longer than they should. Mm. I mean, the hospital is, is a, was, was opened in the 1980s, but it's a 1970s design with a combination of six bay rooms, double rooms, and single rooms with a ward kind of outline of about 35 patients. Mm. And so you maybe, you know, four or five single rooms in, out of that whole number. And even if you allow for other reasons for isolation and never mind maybe issues of compassion, so somebody end of life care, mm -hmm. uh, you've clearly not got enough, never mind the fact that not all of those rooms are on suite rooms. So um, not enough isolation rooms, not a number of the correct types of isolation rooms and not enough air controlled isolation rooms would be the message. Um, as well as obviously, I would say the other thing is space between patients. And I think this is true of other hospitals. You know, mm. we traditionally built hospitals where we had, you know, the, the, the beds too close to each other, even in even in areas where you don't have sort of Nightingale wards. And I think what COVID is is telling us that we really have to have more space. We need to have social distancing in our hospitals for our patients, um, or, or something. Ventilation. And, and better ventilation, and better ventilation. Well. Yeah, mm. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm. Um, I mean, Hillary, then you're looking potentially to be able to save time because I mean, you've what sixty odd mm -hmm. cases, and yet it's taking a mm. fifth of the or a quarter to a fifth mm. of the time of the meeting. And quite a few of them are not confirmed, uh, or that yeah. they actually are suspected only and don't go on. So, how how do you think you could save the time? Then, what what measures could you bring in? Well, I, I think first of all, you know, early early di earlier diagnosis mm. and suspicion, and having both both the team, but also the people admitting patients, the people on wards, thinking about TB earlier, um, rather than later, when then all the knock on consequences are the case. Um, I think we can probably improve the laboratory diagnostic testing, which has clearly been under pressure from COVID and other reasons. Mm. Um, I, I also think probably our liaison. So one of the things we do is, if for example the patient comes in and there's a question about TB, and you know we have usually we kind of exclude TB if we've three negative, say sputum, and they're negative on you know, on microscopy or PCR, and it, it doesn't sound like TB. Now, if, if there's obviously, if we still, if TB is possible, we wait for the culture. But sometimes the other thing we do is, you know, we talk to the consultant or team involved, and if they say, well, look, we've moved on from thinking it's TB, and we now think it's probably, uh, you know, a pulmonary tumour, and TB is way down the list of priorities, and maybe that process could be, you know, could be quicker. Um, so mm. th those are uh, some of the possible areas and and then as i said a kind of a a pro a, maybe a, a pro forma a more uh you know a more rigorous pro forma that's easier to fill out and quicker to fill out and reminds us to ask the question that we should i think all of those things would probably help i mean i suppose if people are outliers and they're not in an area of respiratory medicine then they're more likely to think of other things first rule those try and rule those out and then come to tb rather than the other way around so 
you know, it, it, it's an issue, isn't it, when people are not in specialties because medicine is so specialised these days. It's not general medicine, general surgery. You could be on endocrinology, couldn't you? And maybe people aren't picking up on it. So that's that's a challenge. Well. And I think the other thing is that, you know, the, the, the view out there, even amongst healthcare professionals, is probably the TB is declining. And, and it is in global terms. Um, obviously, we... We see still significant TB in, in the population that has come to Ireland in the last 20 years, as, as is the case in the UK and elsewhere. Um, and, and, um, but it, but it's, its impact is still very significant in terms of the risk of nosocomial spread or indeed occupational spread as well, which is a concern. Um, particularly now, as you know, we, like other countries, have, have moved away from routine BCG vaccination. Mm, okay. Thanks. Um, yeah. Thanks very much for having this chat with us earlier. I think these type of papers is really important to shed the, the light on what teams do and to provide that sort of learning experience. So there'll be things that, that you've identified here, and as you said, there might be others who want to write up their their work in this space to be able to to learn from each other. And I think it's also really important because we need these kind of data to be able to quantify down the track, whether we're doing business cases or various other pieces of work in research to have some decent data on time that some of these things undertake because without that kind of data we can't inform some of those business cases and we can't do proper cost effectiveness analysis so uh, i'm sure your paper will be used in the future uh, for those types of purposes so um, thanks very much for coming on and, and sharing with us today you're very welcome and thank you for asking me and thanks to all our listeners who've joined us for this uh, podcast uh, until next time it's bye from me bye from me bye, bye.